So uh, we are going to be tonight in Psalm 59. Psalm 59, and this is going to be more of a, a Bible study format than a, a sermon format this evening. And we are coming to this passage because it is, in a way, an echo from what we were studying in the morning hour out of the book of 1 Samuel. Now, inside your bulletin is a, is a worksheet you can use. There's a few blanks in there that I'll, I'll fill the answers up on the board uh, as we go. But again, the reason we're coming to this passage is we were studying today about how the Lord brought David deliverance from Saul. Um, one of those stories connects directly to Psalm 59. And so I've actually got a couple different titles for the study tonight. The one that's on your handout says Deliverance in the Morning. And that's something that the end of the psalm celebrates. Uh, another title that I've worked up for it was A Prayer for Assassins. <laughs> but this isn't for their good, it's a prayer for them uh, to be stopped, and we'll see that within it as well. So before we uh, get into the outline, let's read the psalm together, and we must begin with that heading, which is part of the inspired text, and in, which in the Hebrew Bible is verse 1, and there's a long heading. It says, For the choir director, set to El Tasheth, a miktam of David. When Saul sent men, and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high, away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity, and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for my transgression, not for my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine, they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Salah. They return at evening. They howl like a dog and go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. For God is my stronghold. My God, in his loving kindness, will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them, or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On the account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride, and on account of curses and lies which they utter. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Salah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold the God who shows me loving kindness. 
The Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Well, the first thing you see in your handout as we talk about this psalm is what kind of psalm it is. And the genre of this psalm is very clearly a lament. That is, there's a crying out in the midst of distress, uh, pleading, pleading with God to bring deliverance. But it is a lament that also has within it the $50 word of the night, imprecations, prayers for judgment. Now, the strongest laments are in uh, early on, verses 3 and 4. He talks about there's an ambush for my life, fierce men attacking me, and, and I, I didn't do anything to bring this upon me. Verse 6, they're, they're likened to dogs, uh, semi-wild dogs who circled around the cities of ancient days, and they're described that way again in verse 14. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, those dogs in just a little bit. The prayers for judgment, the imprecations, are peppered throughout the poem. There's one in verse 5 about punishing the nations, but they get really intense when you get to verses 11, 12, and 13, uh, particularly when he says in verse 13, destroy them in wrath. These are not the sort of verses that end up being turned into bookmarks, are they? Uh, these are parts of the Bible that people are a little bit uncomfortable with. You know, Jesus, <laughs> no praise songs for this one. That's right. I dare say you'll not find this one in the hymnal too well. Um, you know, these are part of Holy Scripture, and there's a way to appreciate these without getting detoured into error. Um, perhaps later this evening we'll talk a little bit more about how to appreciate prayers for judgment. But for now, we're just circling at a high altitude and looking at what kind of psalm this is. Now, one thing to bear in mind, when David prays these kinds of things, he is praying in accordance with God's revelation. David knew of uh, Samuel's prophetic word, the, your first blank this evening, is that there had been a prophetic word by Samuel about the fall of the house of Saul. And we mentioned it this morning, back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, after Saul has again committed, uh, had an illegal sacrifice, and he disobeyed the instructions of Samuel, uh, Samuel tells him, for Samuel 15, at the end of verse 23, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And there's great drama after that, and Saul sort of repents, and, and Samuel walks away, and Saul grabs onto Samuel's robes and they rip. And Samuel tells them, and so the kingdom has been torn from you and will be given to another. David was knowledgeable of these things. He knew that God had a plan to remove Saul and to elevate him. And yet, David is so careful never to lift a hand against Saul. This must be the Lord's doing for Saul to be taken out and for David to be elevated. In fact, as you read through the books of Samuel, as we're going through that series, it's so obvious that David is not set up as Saul's enemy. The whole animosity is completely on Saul's side and never at all from David's side. And so these prayers for judgment is doing what the rest of the Scripture says. It's not uh, uh, exacting revenge yourself. It's leaving vengeance for the Lord and calling upon Him to act in his own time, in his own way. Now, we're said that this is a psalm of lament, and it is, and yet 
there's also woven into it some very strong statements of trust and confidence, like verse 9 back in Psalm 59. Verse 9, because of his strength, I will watch for you, for God is my strong. That strong as my enemy is, King Saul, who could marshal all the forces of the kingdom, he's no match for God. And again in verses 16 and 17, his confidence that in the morning uh, that there would be deliverance. And in fact, the story, which we'll look at in a little bit, that's exactly what happened. So this is a psalm of lament, but woven in with it are some strong notes of confidence. We'll talk next about the setting. How does this psalm fit into history? How does it fit into the book of Psalms? Well, of course, we know it's a psalm by David. We're told that in the heading. In fact, Psalms 51 to 70 is a collection of some of David's favorite uh, uh, key psalms. And this is, fits right into the middle of them. The background of this one, we are told specifically what the background is. And this is rare. In the book of Psalms, there's maybe a dozen times that we're told what the life event was that was behind that. Other times we're left to sort of guess and we say, well, it could have been from this part of David's life or it could have been from that. But here we're told specifically, we're told this is from the time when McCall helped him escape from Saul. This is the story in 1 Samuel chapter 19, where, just where we were this morning. Um, and uh, David, as you know, was married off to McCall in the previous chapter in 1 Samuel. And Saul is now determined to get rid of him, and he sends these mercenaries. They're called messengers. You know, hey, I got a word for you, and it's not a good word at all. Uh, apparently, the goal is to take him alive so McCall isn't distressed and bring, bring him back to the palace where he'll meet his demise. But uh, they don't get executed. McCall helps him to escape. This is now the fifth time in two chapters that Saul has tried to kill David. And he'll try to do it again before 1 Samuel 19 is over. And we'll return to that next Sunday morning, the Lord willing. So the song, the heading tells us that this was when Saul tried to kill him. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that when David was running and was uh, camping out with Samuel uh, at the end of chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, that that's when he wrote it. It, it may be, that in fact, that this psalm is a uh, result of his reflecting on all that happened. Uh, uh, this is the event that inspired the song, but he might have composed it. In fact, there's a lot of artistry in this psalm. It suggests to me that there's been time to think and compose and uh, create something that would be memorable and enjoyable to sing. Maybe he utilized portions of the prayers that he uttered on the fly as he was running up the road and hiding out in Samuel's, uh, under Samuel's protection. As you flip over to the, the next page, there are several places in the Psalms where he refers to enemies, enemies that are more than just... Um, more than just the, you know, the enemies of Saul. For instance, if you look at verse 5, he says in the middle of verse 5, punish all the nations. Now, I thought we were talking about Saul here. Well, we are. Um, and, and this has led some people to think, well, maybe Saul, David is sort of generalizing. He's written this sometime later, and, and Saul is like one of the many uh, enemies that he faced over the years, and, and that's true. But uh, I want, you, I want you to turn back at this point to 1 Samuel 19 and remind you of something that happened in that context. 1 Samuel 19, 
verse 11 is the verse that keys in most directly with our psalm tonight. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you don't spare your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be put to death. So Michal let down David through a window, and he went out and fled and escaped. So here he's facing Saul's henchmen. But look back at verse 8. Look what else has been happening recently in David's life. When there was war again, David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter so that they fled before him. So this is a time of great animosity for David. Not only is Saul and his henchmen after him, but the Philistines are pretty disgusted with him too. In fact, it's going to become an ironic problem. In a little while, David is going to have to leave the borders of Israel and live in Philistia with these people he's been killing. He has enemies everywhere he goes. And they had been seeking his life, the Philistines, ever since he had knocked off Goliath a couple chapters earlier in 1 Samuel. So David is a man who is embattled. He's encircled. He has assassins. He has, his own king is treating him like a Philistine. Now the irony is, is that Saul is actually the Philistine. He's the one acting like a pagan, trying to, to undo the prophetic word of Samuel and to retain his own kingdom at all costs. So that's the historical setting. By the way, I mentioned that there's about a dozen psalms that have a historical note, and three-quarters of those are from this time where David is running from Saul. This was a period that produced a lot of stress, and out of that stress came these sweet songs that continue to be read and, and also feed into our own worship songs millennia later. I'm going to say something about the placement of this psalm, and, and the reason I comment on this from time to time is you, you remember that the psalms, as we have them here, this is not the order in which they were written. It's not like David sat down one day and wrote Psalm 1. I, I, I'm not even persuaded that David wrote Psalm 1. This is a compilation of songs, um, half of them by David, and they are put together in, in an order at a certain point in the, in the history of the Old Testament. And sometimes we wonder, well, why did Psalm 59 get put right after 58? Why is it before 60? And there is no map that explains it to us, but there are some connections that are interesting. For instance, Psalms 56, 57, 58, 59, 60, five in a row. All of them in their headings say that they are a miktam. Here's a collection of miktams. A miktam is a Hebrew word that means something like an inscription. So maybe suggesting that these are like uh, prayer letters that have been written out to God. Another thing that binds these together, Psalms 57, 58, 59, all of them also have this unusual uh, heading. They say they are set to al-tashef, a Hebrew expression that means do not destroy. I mean, it doesn't mean don't destroy the song. It means, Lord, don't destroy me. <laughs> Preserve me in my trouble. Keep me from distress. Now, that may set to that might mean that this was either a particular tune, uh, might have a tune that could be used for different songs, or maybe a kind of playing. You know, we have all sorts of different genres of, of music that evoke different sounds from bluegrass to blues to country, western, what have you, and each of them have their own usage. Uh, so maybe there's some type of playing that would be used for that. One thing that Psalms 58 and 59 have together is they both describe their, their enemies as 
dangerous animals. They both describe their enemies as dangerous animals. Like in Psalm 58, verse 4, he describes his enemies as a serpent and a cobra. And verse 6, uh, they, are, they have fangs like young lions. Whereas in Psalm 59, verses 6 and 14, they're described as dogs. Now, the kids have a handout tonight that has some questions for them, and I'm not going to ask them to answer at this time, but one of the questions I posed to them was, what's your favorite kind of dog, and, and can you draw a picture of it? I want to see that later on. Uh, and what's the scariest sort of dog that you've ever seen, and can you draw a picture of that? But I'll ask you for the answer later on. And then the other question is, listen to the study tonight and see if you can answer, why does the Bible usually speak about dogs in a bad way? And I'll tell you right now, the answer is not a dogs are bad. Everyone knows that. That's not the right answer. But the right answer is because in ancient days, particularly in this part of the world, most people did not domesticate dogs. There were a small, I mean, the, the number of people who domesticated dogs back then in that part of the world were fewer than the number of people today in our context who domesticate pigs. I mean, do you have pet pigs? Yeah, yeah, but not, not very many people. Likewise, in ancient days, the number of people who had domesticated dogs, very, very few. So there were semi-domesticated dogs, feral dogs, who prowled around on the perimeter of cities. They were kind of like the way our coyotes are. They're a nuisance. They're a problem. You can get diseases from them. They can kill you or cause all sorts of problems. And so in the Bible, whenever dogs are mentioned, they're either viewed negatively or they might be kind of neutral. It's not really a positive sort of assessment, but they're never described in the glowing terms like when I think about the 35 names I've given to my particular dog. Um, so uh, the, the enemies here are described as uh, they're, they're desperate, they're dangerous, and, and like a lot of those dogs that prowl around the city, verse 14, verse 15, they wander about for food and growl if they're not satisfied. Yeah, well, that's like the henchmen who were circling around trying to find David that night. Now, number four in your handout. This is a little, little bit of a technical thing. If you, if you thought I've been technical already, let me take it a step further. There's a guy in the world of psalm scholarship lived 100 years ago named James Thurtle. Does that name sound familiar to, to you, Steve? Did you ever hear of Thurtle's theory? Thurtle was a commentator on the psalms, and he had a theory that is pretty interesting, and there have been dissertations written on this topic. And the idea is that when you have long headings on a psalm, he says sometimes, he thinks what happened is in the years of copying the psalms, that sometimes the part of that long heading is actually a closer to the psalm in front of it. And, and the argument he makes is based on the book of Habakkuk, and I want you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk. If you get to Matthew, you went too far. Let's back up a little bit. It's only three chapters. It's easy to miss. Now, Habakkuk uh, is an unusual book in the prophets, and part of what makes it unusual is that it ends with a psalm. Habakkuk 3 is a psalm. It even borrows some words from some of David's psalms. But, uh, so look in your Bible at verse 1. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. 
Now, if you've been reading in the Psalms, that sounds an awful lot like a lot of the headings in the Psalms, doesn't it? In fact, there's even Psalms, that you, if you have a reference Bible, it'll tell you. There's a number of Psalms that say that, Shigianoth, which is a, a, a style of playing. So, if this was the book of Psalms, if this song here, Habakkuk 3, was in the book of Psalms, that would have been a heading right there. Now, go to the very end of it. Go to the very last verse. Verse 19. And at the end of verse 19, there's a closer, a subscript for the choir director on my stringed instruments. So very clearly here in the back, there's no way of confusing it. This song has a superscript, a writing overhead, and a subscript, a writing underneath. See that? So Thirtle theorized that in the Psalms, when you've got a long heading and it starts off with for the choir director according to this tune, that that's actually supposed to go to the psalm in front of it. And uh, it's a theory, and uh, uh, people have tried to work this out. Now, the reason I mention it, I'm not sold on it. I'm not telling you it must be this way, but it is an interesting possibility. And I want you to come back to Psalm 59 and go to Psalm, actually go to uh, Psalm 60 and look at the heading there. Our Bibles have the, this is the longest superscription in the uh, book of Psalms. Uh, it says, for the choir director, according to Shushan Aduth. And then we have uh, what, what might be the next heading, Emektam of David to teach when he struggled with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. So Thirtle would say that the first part of that, for the choir director, according to Shushan Aduth, is the end of Psalm 59. Now, why would that even be more than just a curiosity? It's because of what Shushan Aduth means. It, it is a phrase that means the lilies of the covenant. The lilies of the covenant, or aduth can also mean a testimony, depending on the context. Maybe you remember this morning, or I don't know if I said it this morning or last week, it's a, preaching's a blur right now, but that two of the three people that the Lord used to deliver David in 1 Samuel 19 were connected to David by covenant. Jonathan had made a covenant with David in the previous chapter. Even though he was the heir apparent, he was the the, uh, the prince who was supposed to rise up in Saul's place. He recognized that David was God's man, and he makes a special covenant with him in chapter 18, and he reaffirms that covenant in chapter 20. Jonathan was related to him by covenant, and, and also his wife, Michal, she is, uh, is connected to him by covenant, the covenant of marriage. And because of her covenantal relationship with him, she sticks her, sticks her neck out, helps him escape. Now she lies through her teeth and there's that problem we talked about this morning about the, the idol, uh, which is really a best use for it was as a dummy. Uh, but nonetheless, she was acting out of a kind of loyalty to David. Might it be that this little closer here, according to the lilies of the covenant, that is, again, this is a tune name or a style of playing, that this connects to the covenant faithfulness that was being shown by individuals to David, 
And ultimately, there was a covenant faithfulness from God. I can't prove that. Uh, I won't die for that viewpoint, uh, but it's something to consider. And as you read through the Psalms, you might occasionally think of Thirtle's theory and whether it, we can divide up the headings a little bit differently. I'll ride back to our handout and we'll say a few things about the structure uh, of this psalm. It, is, it falls into two parts. There is a opening lament in the first ten verses, and right after that tenth verse, there is, the, there is a uh, salah. Actually, no, it's not in this spot. I misspeak. Uh, there is a salah that breaks it up in a few other spots. You have an opening lament in verses 1 to 10, and then you have a strengthened petition in verses 11 to 17. This psalm has a lot of repetition within it, and that's intentional. But this repetition gets stronger and greater and bigger as you move along throughout the poem. And there's a greater sense of confidence that David has the further you read as well. Also, within this poem, this is what helps us to see it, that there's these two halves to it, is that there, is a, there are actually a couple repeated refrains, kind of like a chorus that's used within the song. Well, we sang some songs this evening, and I think every one of them had a chorus where we repeated sort of the same words after the verse. Hebrew songs usually are not that predictable, aren't that repetitive, but there is a kind of repetition that happens here. There is, firstly, an inner refrain. When I say an inner refrain, I mean that the psalm has a half and a half, and in the middle of each one, there's a repeated chorus. That's the inner refrain. And that's about David's enemies being dangerous dogs. You see it in verse 6. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, and go around the city. And the same idea, not exactly the same words, but verse 14. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, and go around the city. Clearly a repeated refrain. These are both preceded by, interesting, the word salah comes right before those. Salah is a Hebrew word nobody really knows what it means, but it seems to be used often to slow the song down, perhaps to allow, allow instrumentation to play, and that might be called sometimes as a place for a break in the song. So there's an inner refrain, and then there's also a main refrain. That is, at the end of each half, there is a chorus that's repeated. The first time it happens is verses 9 and 10. Because of his strength, I will watch for you. God is my stronghold. My God and his loving kindness will meet me. God will look, let me look triumphantly on my foes. And then the same notion with some of the same words is found in verses 16 and 17. But as for me, I will sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning, for you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the one who shows me loving kindness. Not exactly the same, but very close. There are some phrases that are almost identical. Um, in fact, I should say that in the, in the English Bible, it sounds a little more different. In the Hebrew Bible, the wording is almost exactly identical, by perhaps different only by just a couple letters, which what accounts for the difference in translation. They would rhyme more in Hebrew than they do in English. Some versions even translate them the same way, like the New English translation translates verses 9 and 10 and 16 and 17 exactly the same way. You are my source of strength. I will sing praise to you. 
For God is my refuge, the God who loves me. Well, just seeing those things, some notes and applications, this psalm is rich with some wonderful wordplay in the Hebrew text. There's this artful repetition that shows up. It's a very artfully composed poem. There's even some repetition, some rhyming that we can't bring out in the translation. Like in verse 3, the, word, the men who are described as fierce, fierce men launch an attack against me, rhymes with the word for strength in verse 10. God is my loving kindness, he will look triumphantly upon my... Let's see, that's the wrong, that's the wrong uh, verse, isn't it? Uh, verse 9, because of his strength. Uh, and then again in verse 17. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. So the term strength and, and fierce rhyme, but they're very different reference, aren't they? That the enemies sound like one thing, but God, who's greater, sounds the same way. The enemies are sent to watch for David, we're told in the heading of the psalm, but David says that he is going to watch in verse 9 for the Lord's help. That's a triumphant kind of watching. David protests his innocence in verses 3 and 4. He's not speaking out of pride when he says this. It's for no sin of mine, no iniquity of mine. I didn't do anything. You know, you read the story in 1 Samuel 19, and that's exactly what Jonathan said to his father. Look, Dad... He hasn't done anything to you. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, he's been your right-hand man. Why are you going to sin against him? And so David's not speaking proudly here. He's just speaking the truth. Sometimes a confession of innocence is, is not a proud thing at all. David's letter C, David's enemies have been heaping up trouble against him, but David heaps up his understanding of God's attributes. Look in verse 5 in the way he describes God. You O oh Lord, God of hosts, God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Notice how he multi three different references for God's name. Yahweh, God of hosts, God of Israel. His enemies are just conspiring and circling, but he fortifies his mind by thinking about all the different things that God is. And that brings him encouragement. Letter D we have in this psalm one of three times in the book of Psalms where we're told that God laughs. Verse 8, But you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at the nations. And the other time, Psalm 2, verse 4, is the, the most famous of he who sits in the heavens laughs at them. God is not in any way scared by all the plans that the brightest and worst people in the world think up. He, he laughs. Psalm 37, verse 13 is the other instance, and, and all three of these are a similar kind of laughing. 37, <clears throat> verse 13, the Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. Back at the verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous, gnashes at him with his teeth, and the Lord laughs at him. These are, this is not... Uh, the laughter of, um, uh, uh, this is not sadistic laughing. The, don't think of some evil, dark character, ha ha ha, bru ha ha ha. It's not that kind of laugh. It's, it's, the, it's the laugh of, of derision. It's the, it's the, can you believe that? Can you imagine that they think they could do that? It's from the position of power and omniscience and omnipotence. God is not sadistic. But he's demonstrating his ultimate control and really the futility of waging war against his plans and purposes. Um, 
ultimately fighting against God is not a laughing matter, is it? Not in the humorous sense. One last thing we'll note before we take a look at the visual outline chart on the last page, but letter E at the bottom there, the repeated references to strongholds. Many times he says, God is my stronghold. These are, the Hebrew words all indicate high places. Enemies were mounting plans against him, but they were not high enough to pull him up, pull him from God's uplifting protection. Verse 1, deliver me, God, from my enemies. Set me securely on high. You know, it's interesting when David fled from Gibeah of Saul back in 1 Samuel 19. We'll see next Sunday morning what he does is he goes up the road to the city of Ramah, up into the hill country where Samuel is, and is up on a hill when Saul and his men come up and the Spirit stops them dead in their tracks from their efforts to take Paul, to take David. So the, what was, uh, what was uh, uh, literally true of David uh, in his experience becomes a metaphor here in this psalm for the protection, the high position of safety that the Lord gives to his people. Well, in the time that remains, I want us to talk through the psalm using the visual outline chart that's on the back of the page. I've made a number of comments on the, the verses already, so I'll not go into great depth, but you can start up at the top in that gray box that tells you what the purpose of the psalm is. David pleads for God's deliverance from Saul's depraved attempt to snuff out his life. While his enemies look for opportunities to slay him, he looks to God to sustain him. In one box over, it tells you some what this kind of psalm it is, a lament with imprecations. We can actually date this event to pretty accurately to the year 1013. It was about the time that this would have taken place during Saul's early pursuit of David. Now over on the left side in the green column, there's a list of all the different headings. We're told that it's been, uh, this is an authorized poem. It's consigned to the Tabernacle Choir Director. Now maybe that belongs to the previous psalm, I don't know, but... Uh, the same sort of thing is said at, at, at the beginning of the next psalm as well. There's a musical note that it's Al-Tashet, do not destroy. It's a miktam, which is uh, some sort of a word for inscription or meditation written by David, and the historical setting is Saul's besieging of David's house in 1 Samuel 19. So come with me now to the opening lament, verses 1 to 10, the petition for protection from the enemy assaults. This part of the psalm breaks up into three parts. Verses 1 to 5, there's the plea for deliverance from enemies. And it opens up with a fourfold initial petition. Two requests, firstly, for God's saving security in verse 1. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. God alone can give him the security. He has friends in high places, yes. He's got Jonathan, and he's got McCall, and he'll have Samuel soon, but mostly he needs God. And it's interesting when we come to the story next week when Saul's men fall under the power of the Spirit, actually Samuel doesn't do a thing. It's God himself who intervenes to deliver David. Verse 2, there are two requests for God's just protection. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. These guys are crooked perverse, they're criminals. Yeah, they're sent by the king, but the whole thing is crooked. He is not suffering here as a righteous, as an unrighteous sinner. He is suffering 
as an innocent party. In fact, he makes a complaint about these plots in verses 3 to 4. And when I say complaint, I don't mean that he's whining to God. But he's making sort of a case in his prayer. Now, Lord, you know, I wouldn't do anything to bring this on myself. These are unwarranted and treacherous assaults, verses 3 and 4 tell us. Verse 3, for behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me. Not for any transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord, for no guilt of mine. I haven't done anything to provoke this, not, nothing wrong to provoke it. So he ends verse 4 with a plea for quick help. Uh, they run, set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. Uh, he's not being pushy with God. He's not being disrespectful, but he's, he's saying, the time is now, I need your help. And his help that night would come through the creative mind of his wife, who would slip him out the window and put the dummy in the bed. There's in verse 5 a concluding petition for God to intervene in a strong way. He appeals to God's might in the beginning of verse 5. You, O Lord God of hosts, that's the, the Yahweh God of battles, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. And there's the prayer for firm judgment. Awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous in iniquity. Now there's a time to pray for the salvation of the wicked. And there's a time to pray for God to stop the wicked. In fact, you can even pray both. They're not mutually exclusive prayers. But there are times for judgment. There's times for divine intervention. And David knows that this is the time. They need to be stopped. It, you know, if he runs too far to the east, he's going to be in Philistia, and they're going to try to kill him. If he runs, notice the, the story, he, interestingly, he doesn't run back to his hometown, to, to Bethlehem. He goes north. It's as if he's trying to find a safe place to go, he, and he needs the Lord to be his protection. And after this first portion of this opening lament, there's the salah, a Hebrew word that I think would indicate a, a time for a musical interlude. And right after that salah, here's the, the inner refrain. The, he laments over the, his enemies that they're dangerous dogs, and their arrival is discussed in verse 6. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city. Uh, recently, uh, where we live, Heidi's been taking our, our dog for a, a walk or a jog and has encountered some rather large coyotes. You know, uh, where, uh, where she used to live, all the coyotes were short and squat. Something about, I don't know what they're eating in our hills, but they're <laughs> quite a bit bigger in it. That's a bit of an intimidating thing. And you imagine a pack of those things. That can put a lot of fear in you. And his enemies, these henchmen, are circling around the house and trying, hoping to catch him with the morning light. And they make a fearless assault with their weaponized words. So part of the plan against David was to degrade him in terms of uh, his public reputation. Verse 7, Behold, they belch forth with their mouth Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? They, think, they, they know these things are false. But who's going to do anything about it? They've got the power. They've got the permission of the king to do it, to spread these lies. So as they're trying to get information about David and find out where he is, they're populating the community with these falsehoods. There's as much character assassination going on as there are attempts at literal assassination. Now after that, refrain and this lament about them being dogs. Notice how this first half of the psalm 
ends with a note of confidence in verses 8, 9, and 10. Confidence in God's protection. Uh, verse 8, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You scoff at all the nations. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not just Saul's henchmen, but any of these enemies who set themselves up against you and your plan and your kingdom, they're but nothing. All in time, it will come undone. And then in verses 9 and 10, there's the main refrain that's going to be repeated almost word for word again. And to hear David makes a promise that he's going to keep trusting God. He resolves to watch for God in verse 9, and because of his strength, I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. That phrase, because of his strength, is probably perhaps referring to Saul and the amount of uh, aggression he's bringing this is the thing that drives him to trust in someone who's bigger and better, which is God himself. Verse 10 continues, My God in his loving kindness will meet me. You know, eventually Saul was going to come meet David. <laughs> Too late. God's already with David. Saul is mismatched. And then in verse 10, there's a confident note about final victory. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. David won't chuck one spear against Saul or his henchmen. God will bring about a victory. It's going to take years, by the way. He gets deliverance in this night, but it's going to be about seven years before all of this trouble with Saul winds down. So these prayers aren't just for the moment. They're for the long haul ahead. So that's the opening lament. That's how this song of a pleading for help opens up. And then the second half starts in verse 11. And you see that this is the strengthened petition. The same ideas that were said in the first half are stated again, but this time more forcefully. And these, 11, uh, these uh, seven verses also break up into three parts as he makes this confident prayer for the elimination of his enemies. He prays firstly in verses 11 to 13 for the destruction of his enemies, praying for a memorable intervention in verses 11 and 12. He, here's an imprecation in verse 11 for a slow but steady overthrow. He says, verse 11, Do not slay them, or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power, and bring them down, O Lord our shield. What, what an interesting prayer. Don't kill them all at once. <laughs> if you just kill them all at once, we're bound to forget, you know, because that crisis will be passed, and then we'll, we'll move on. But Lord, if you could orchestrate this deliverance so that it takes some time and we can see your hand at work, we'll recognize that you are active in our midst and it'll keep us more focused on you. This is an interesting prayer strategy. Most of the time when we're in distress, our prayer is, oh Lord, please slowly take this away. <laughs> Many times in our distress, Lord, please, Lord, help me get over this illness now. But sometimes the Lord's plan is for there to be process because as we wait on him, there can be greater glory given him as we learn to trust him. Verse 12, there's a justification for this kind of prayer. Uh, on account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. And on account of the curses and the lies which they utter. Now, now earlier he had said, look, Lord, you know, I've not done anything, but look what, look what they have done. This needs to be stopped. It needs to be brought to an end. It would be just and right for you, God, to bring this to an end. 
He prays for thorough judgment now, beginning in verse 13. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Praying here for righteous wrath to come. Now, again, it's not all going to be at once. How long would it be before the kingdom of Saul would fall? Seven, eight years? How long would it take for the Philistines to be gone? Long time. You get to the New Testament, there's still a few Philistines around. Now, nowadays, no more Philistines. There's a justification given for this kind of praying, and that's the glory of God's reign at the, the end of verse 13, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. And after that statement of, of that doxology, there's a salah, a pause. Then comes another lament for the deprived, deprived dogs in verses 14 to 15. That inner refrain, refrain is repeated. They return at evening, they howl like a dog and go around the city. But then they're described in this pitiful state, you know. They wander about for food and growl if they're not satisfied. Yeah, they're kind of scary, but also they're pretty sick and desperate. It's a sad state in which they are. In the end, the shame and the disgrace comes on them. And then in verses uh, 13, uh, verse 15, well, we read that pitiful state, their failed terror, the confidence in God's protection, verses 16 and 17, as the psalm comes to an end. He resolves to praise God for the certain deliverance that he's going to bring. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. No growling, no complaining, but singing. I shall sing. I shall sing. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been a stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. There was a literal morning where David felt this way. That morning when he found himself up in Ramah and he knew that those henchmen were back down the road in Gibeah and he was safe for the time being. And then that the main refrain is adapted in verse 17 as he promises to praise God. Oh, my strength. I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold. The God who shows me loving kindness. As faithful as Jonathan was to keep covenant, and he was, and as faithful as McCall was, and she was, even though imperfectly, more importantly was the faithfulness of God who kept his word. Remember that David had not only the promises of the law, he was an observant Hebrew who was keeping the law and holding on to the promises made through Moses, holding on to promises made through Abraham, but remember, in his case, Samuel had made promises over him as well. Samuel had anointed him as a boy and that was so full of significance that God had a particular plan for him to get the kingdom going in the right direction. And David, in his times of distress, holds on to the promises that God had been revealed, knowing that God will be faithful, faithful to keep all that he had said and done. Now, you and I have promises made to us exceedingly great and precious promises made to us through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Promises like that God is with us. God is for us. God is working all things together for good to those who love God. And we, as we go through the dark nights of our soul, as we go through times of adversity, we may not have the same. We don't have dogs prowling around us or assassins trying to knock us off, but 
There is plenty of opposition. And whatever we face, we hold on to the sure promises of God and know that in the end, he will accomplish all that he's promised us in Jesus Christ. Father, we take encouragement from this, this psalm this evening, and we pray that the, these refrains, these attitudes of confidence in your word will uh, take root within our hearts. And as we go out into the world this week and face our troubles and trials, may we know that you are there and that you are present, that you will meet us and that you can be our stronghold as well. Thank you for the fortress that we find in Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen.